I think a lot of people I talk to in the software space, and I think I kind of joke, you know, Steve Jobs, I think, put it in people's heads that um, that customers didn't always know what they want. So you have to deliver something different. And to a degree, I, I understand, like, even if he said that or if it's just attributed to him. But I also say, you know, there was only one Steve Jobs. And so he may have been able to predict what people needed before they needed it. Most of mm-hmm. us need to listen to our customers and deliver what they're asking for, something close to what they're asking for. That the, the way in which you deliver it may be novel and the customer wouldn't have come up with it on their own, but they know what their pain points are. And I think the closer you are to your customers, the better chance you have of delivering something of value that they're willing to pay for. And I hear way too often in talking with entrepreneurs and software leaders that they, you know, they'll respond back with things like, you know, our, our roadmap is based on our gut. So the big question is this, how do you grow your SaaS company? In an era where information is everywhere and every book, expert, blog, and podcast is evangelizing different paths to scale, how do you figure out which path is right for you and your SaaS company? My name is Shivna Narayanan and I'm your host and growth advisor. Formerly, I was a CMO of Wild Apricot and grew to 20 million in ARR without a sales team. This podcast is about a simple idea, that growth can be engineered. Each episode, I will help you filter through the noise and curate and distill growth strategies to help you succeed in growing your SaaS company. Welcome to How to SaaS. Let's get started. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about how you can work with How to SaaS and what kinds of clients we work with. We have three solutions. We provide CMO consulting, where we walk you through our nine box marketing framework to fully audit your funnel and marketing activities and we give you a strategy and roadmap to scale your demand generation and digital marketing. Number two, we provide PE advisory services where we work with private equity investors to scale the growth of their portfolio companies through consulting programs, training, and board member services. And number three, we run the world's flagship demand generation training program for SaaS companies and their marketing executives, leaders, and team members. It's a 12-week intensive that gives you the frameworks you need to scale your SaaS company's demand generation using paid media, SEO, content marketing, nurture programs, website optimization, and more. To check out all these solutions and to get more information, set up a free consult at www.howtosass.com. Also, if you like the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher and leave us a rating or review so that other people looking for content like this can also discover it. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Now, on to the show. In 2017, one of the companies that expressed an interest in buying Wild Apricot was a company named Daxco, a really big player in the health and wellness space. And so I ended up meeting their CEO, Dave Gray, in San Francisco while I was down there for Saster 2017. Um, And we really hit it off um, and we got to talking. And what I uncovered is Dave has a relentless focus on culture, strategy, and long-term business thinking. But for various reasons, you know, the deal fell apart with Daxco and we ended up being acquired by Personify and the rest is history. Uh, But Dave and I kept in touch mainly because we're connected with a lot of entrepreneurs in Birmingham and Atlanta that bring us together annually. And uh, Pamlico Capital was the former PE sponsor of Daxco and Pamlico ended up buying Personify uh, after they had exit their investment inside Daxco because they knew the industry well. So Dave and I have kept in touch ever since, and he is really one of the most focused entrepreneurs that I have ever met, uh, especially in the PE world where sometimes short-term thinking prevails in order to generate value for shareholders in the short run. Um, He brings a long-term thinking approach, which can take an organization very far. So I've always been super impressed by Dave, and I think he has a lot to share Uh, for founders and investors who listen to this podcast. So when you're listening to the episode, be on the lookout for that. And Dave's commitment to focus is really impressive. And the other thing worth mentioning is Dave has recently started an initiative called the BISO Collective, where he's looking for mission critical software companies where the founder or founders want to exit the business without necessarily selling to a private equity firm and are willing to bring on someone like Dave as an operator. And they're going to be deploying what's called a buy and hold strategy 
instead of necessarily just buying the company and flipping it in three to five years, which is something private equity does. And that works well for many founders, but other founders don't necessarily want to go that route because they want to preserve what they've built. So what Dave is building at BISO is super interesting. So be on the lookout for the description of that. And if you're interested, Dave's contact information is mentioned in the episode as well. Outside of that, it's a fantastic episode in terms of strategy and how you can grow through acquisitions and culture and focus. And so I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, Be sure to let me know what you guys think. Thanks a lot. All right, Dave, welcome to the show. How's it going? Good. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for being on. Um, So why don't you give your background for the audience and then we'll take it from there. Okay. Um, I started my career after college as a software developer, Um, was then recruited into consulting, which I did for um, a number of large kind of Fortune 500, large government entities, a wide range of different types of organizations. And then in the late 90s, um, my wife and I were looking to move from Chicago back down south and um, had chosen Atlanta. And at that time, in the kind of the height of the dot-com boom, a lot of the Silicon Valley and, and Boston-based and even um, Austin, Texas-based companies seemed to be opening offices in Atlanta. So you kind of have the best of both worlds work there or live there, but work for a Silicon Valley-based company. So that's what I decided to do. And I really kind of targeted startups only um, and went to work for a San Jose-based software startup. Um, it was there for about four and a half years through kind of the early startup stages all the way through the IPO. And then unfortunately when the dot-com bubble burst and the NASDAQ crashed, um, rode down the other side of that, <laughs> that story as well. Um, and then after that company was acquired by PeopleSoft and then eventually Oracle, I decided um, to go on to my next thing. And my wife and I had, had twins back in 2000 and decided we wanted to raise our family back in Alabama, which is where my wife was born and raised and where I was raised most of my childhood. And so we moved to Birmingham. And um, then shortly after that, I met a guy who was a serial entrepreneur who had invested in a company um, that eventually became known as Daxco. um, And it was kind of floundering, doing a handful of different things. And um, I decided to join that and lead that business kind of into its next life to try to figure out what business it needed to be in and how it was going to make money. And so I started that at January 1st of 03 and led that business for 15 and a half years. And um, we went from about 180,000 in total software revenues, just a nub of a business and focused on a kind of an interesting niche. We originally started focusing on YMCA's and Jewish community centers, which we came to kind of refer to as the nonprofit segment of the broader health club space and did that um, really focused on that for several years before we raised outside capital with a private equity group in 2008 and then had two subsequent kind of private equity exits, one in 14 and another in 2016 um, and grew that business um, to a team of about 350 people. We had offices, I think in five different cities as a result of some acquisitions we had done um, we had probably around 11,000 customers or, or health clubs of all shapes and sizes in 68 countries that used our software to run their core business. And I exited that business a little over a year ago and have now launched um, a new initiative where I am pursuing the acquisition of B2B mission critical SaaS businesses with the idea of creating a holding company where we would acquire these businesses um, with a buy and hold strategy with no intent of selling the assets that we own. And so mm-hmm. that's what I've been doing the last 25 years or so. And, and that new initiative that you mentioned, that's called the BISO Collective, right? It is, yes. BISO mm-hmm. Collective. Got it. So um, we'll jump into that later on the call, but let, let's talk about Daxco a little bit further. So you said you came in in 2003 and then there were multiple PE exits um, or, or turns, if you will. Um, so talk about that. What, what went into growing it from where you entered in 2003 to the large company that it became in the last 15 years? Yeah, I think in the early days, the, the, probably the single biggest thing that allowed us to really grow that business was what we refer to as relentless focus. And so when we were a real small business, we were kind of um, dabbling in a bunch of things. And in 2003, made the decision we were going to focus on this one little niche market. And then we just 
with laser focus, put all of our energy behind that. And, and I think we're pretty disciplined not, about not being distracted by other things and other opportunities and just really kept our eye on the ball and continue to steadily grow that business. And then as we got larger, we're able to expand in kind of very near adjacent segments of that market. But I think the mm -hmm. biggest kind of overriding theme, particularly during those early days, was just uh, the relentless focus. And so what was, the, what was the starting point when you came in, when you decided this is going to be our main thing? It was the health and wellness category? Yeah, we, yeah, we, had, um, we had like four or five different businesses. It was interesting. So the, the company overall was doing about $900,000 in revenue in 2002. Um, across like four or five different product lines. And so they had been kind of testing and dabbling in different industries. We had a, um, a software product that we sold to the university athletic department space and had some kind of marquee customers there. We had um, a transaction engine to do payments. We had another product that did kind of online registration for anybody who had memberships or events. We had another line of business, which actually was our biggest business at that point was um, kind of IT. Um, services, so setting up phone systems and PCs and kind of the non-sexy side of, of mm -hmm. technology. And then in um, 2003, really out of necessity, we were almost out of cash. We were, we were burning a fair amount of cash on a monthly basis, and we really just needed to pick something and be really good at it or die trying, but this dabbling in five or six things just was not a sustainable model. And so put all of our effort in those first couple months of 2003 to just figure out what was that one thing we felt like we could make a bet on and then put everybody's energy behind that and really divest ourselves of the other things we were doing and, and get down to a single core. And so that's what we did. Um, really probably by the end of February, 2003 had made that decision and then everybody was kind of pointed in the same direction, chasing that. So, and, and what does that look like in February, 2003, where do you decide to focus in, um, in terms of, at an operational level, how does that come to life across the different teams, the priorities for the business, the targets that you're setting? Can you bring it to life a little bit for us? Yeah, so the market was YMCA's and there's about 900 associations around the country in the US. And, um, and of those 900, they represent about 2,500 actual YMCA facilities like you and I would think of as a you know, large YMCA health club in your city. And mm -hmm. so the, the total addressable market was really 900 buying units. We eventually kind of went into the JCC, which is Jewish Community Center space, which is very similar. And they, they had another couple hundred. So in all, we were around 1,100 or 1,200 targets in the U.S., which is a pretty small market. And um, the good thing about that is, is you know everybody in that space. So it's very definable who your market is. It's very clear. There's no mistaking a YMCA for something else or you know, something else being YMCA. I mean, it's very clear you're either a YMCA or you're not. And so that allowed there to be a um, really kind of a refined focus. It, you know, if it wasn't a YMCA, we weren't talking to them. If it was, we were interested. And so I think that was a big part of it um, was just defining with clarity what the market was. And the other thing was just getting rid of everything else we were, we were doing that was really just a distraction. And so um, I mentioned the university business we had we actually sold that or kind of gave it to the guy who was running it. And then he ran that for a while and ended up getting bought by a competitor later. The guys who were running the, the IT services business. We sold it to the two main um, leaders of that small business. And at the time they probably had 10 people and um, we had gotten them to break even. So it was a sustainable business and they still run that business today. We, they kind of pulled together some friends and family money and, you know, the small acquisition price bought that from, from Daxco. So it was really an exercise of refining the market we were in, divesting ourselves of everything else we were doing. And then through that, we were able to give some people some entrepreneurial opportunities. And then third, it was, it was internally thinking about what do we really want to be good at? We wanted to build innovative, you know, software that was going to solve problems that people were, that were willing to pay for those, that solution. And then the other piece of it was recognizing what we weren't going to be good at. And so as an example, we were hosting our own software back then, and that made no sense to me. There were people, even though this was kind of pre um, 
SAS term. This was, mm -hmm. you know, people were calling it different things back then, but it was clear mm -hmm. that there were going to be people who were in the managed hosting business that were going to be best in class at that. And so we started outsourcing things like hosting that didn't make sense for us to try to be good at. We wanted to be good at building great software and delivering fantastic service and the other things that weren't core to that, we were going to let somebody else do. And so that was kind of what we did in 2003 is, you know, clarity around the market, divest ourselves and internal operations focus on the things we wanted to be best at and let other people do the other things. Right. hundred percent. I'm a big fan of uh, Michael Porter and he talks about how strategy is not just about what you do. It's about what you don't do. So right. um, yeah. focus is a big part of that. Yeah. Um, and actually in a different life, Dave, you and I would be competitors because at Personify, we were selling into the same market. So I know. <laughs> yeah. 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 we face Personify quite a bit. Yeah. 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 That's uh, one of the number one competitors. Yeah. Um, so, so tell me, so, so now you, you set it up, you say YMCA's and JCC's are going after them, uh, fairly defined market, fairly small market. How do you go from that to scaling in that market and then finding those adjacencies? Yeah. Um, one thing, and you just mentioned the Michael Porter book, which I'm a, I'm a fan of that quote as well, but, um, a, a book that we read after all this kind of played out, but really kind of, it was a great, um, explanation of what we had done was called profit from the core i love and, that book and it, it, yeah and it talks about like how do you get the cut the um businesses that stay in their core market longer tend to do better than mm -hmm. those that diversify too soon and so what we found very much like those authors explain is that the deeper we got into that market and the deeper we got into serving ymcas the more we understood about their business um, the more we spoke their language, the more it really kind of became part of who we were and it became, became part of our DNA that um, the more we wanted to do together. And so we built trust with our customers. Our customers wanted us to do more stuff and they were kind of pulling us in other things. So, you know, we had an original um, member management system, which was kind of the ERP solution for these YMCAs. But then we built an accounting uh, solution. We built mobile solutions. We built a payments platform. We built a CRM solution. We had other services that we delivered. And so it just kind of, um, you know, mushroomed from there. It was like we had one product that we did a really good job. It was, it was mission critical and core to how they ran their business. And then we built a high level of trust. They were asking us to deliver more things. And so um, that original TAM of one product in this one niche market ended up becoming that one niche market, but with, you know, with several different products and services. And so the size of that opportunity grew um, significantly. And, I, and, you know, the decision we made at the beginning of 2003, I don't think any of us would have guessed that just in the YMCA and JCC market, we have been able to build as big a business as we did. And then on top of that, I mean, they, you know, they're more than just health clubs. I mean, certainly JCCs and YMCAs do a lot more in their community than simply just the health club component of it. But that is a, that is their largest revenue generator for sure. And so there are other adjacent markets that, um, aren't tangents really in my mind. They're very, very similar. It's just a different segment of the market. And so there's, you know, for-profit health clubs, there's um, campus rec centers, which are quite a bit different now than when I was in school. They're these massive, you know, 100,000 square foot, beautiful facilities that have membership needs and classes and different things that you have to manage just like you would for a for-profit health club. There's hospital-based wellness centers. So there are all these different types of organizations that operated with a very similar mission. It's how do you build healthier communities? And so through acquisitions, we're able to enter some of these, some of these other segments of the market and now have a set of solutions that really, if you're a health club of any shape or size and you come to Daxco and say, do you have software for me? Our answer is yes. And we're mm -hmm. really the only people in the industry who can do that. Um, most are either at the, the small box end, things like yoga and, and CrossFit and things like that, or they're at the upper end of the enterprise side. And we have solutions that can go across all of those for-profit and non-profit. Right. Um, so let's dig a little bit deeper into that process. Um, so the profit from the core book for the audience talks about, I mean, it's a very complicated process, but just to put it at a high level, you start by defining your core business and what the core differentiators are and your unique market sources of market power and then you expand or excuse me you strengthen that core through different avenues that 
part within that strength capability of your business. And then you expand it based on new channels, new markets, new product lines, new supply chain uh, steps, et cetera. So um, walk us through that process, right? You, you mentioned a bunch of items that you added to the core Daxco platform, accounting payments, et cetera. So how do you go about identifying that from your existing base of customers? Yeah, I mean, it, this is very simple, I guess. <laughs> we, we listened to our customers and yeah. you know, they would tell us what they needed. And it was interesting too, because what we delivered our original product um, was member management and programs and fundraising, the core pieces of how they generate their revenue. And these, these aren't exact, but you know, roughly a, a YMCA, one of these nonprofit health club organizations would, you know, 70% would come from membership. Um, 20% would come from programs and programs are anywhere from like um, enhanced group exercise classes to basketball leagues, to swim lessons, senior citizen exercise, all kinds of things. And then 10% was from fundraising. And so our solution helped manage, you know, hundred percent of their revenue. And so mm. it, was really, it was really critical. And then um, that became really the central system that every single person in that organization used to get their job done. And so it was very easy to say, well, it'd be great if you guys also, you know, had an accounting solution and we're like, well, okay, we'll build that. And it's natively integrated and it's easy to, because we controlled kind of both solutions. Then we built a, a very, a very purpose built CRM solution that was really geared towards that market and understanding how, you know, they're, they're different than a lot of people would use CRM. It's really a lot about engagement, um, not so much selling new stuff, but it's about how do you keep somebody engaged so that they feel part of the part of the organization and are less likely um, to leave that, you know, so it's driving higher retention rates, but it's also driving better health outcomes. So a big part of our customer's mission and a big part of our mission was to build healthier communities. And so, you know, we wanted solutions that would be able to identify when people were kind of getting off track and how do you pull them back in and, and keep them on the, on the right healthy you know, trajectory. And so we built that. And so it was just really just listening to what customers wanted and understanding what our customers, customers or their members wanted. And then, um, you know, we did a lot through focus groups and, um, and we would have, you know, very targeted um, groups of customers that would really just help kind of be the, the voice of the customer collectively. Cause then we had, you know, tens of thousands of users and you can't listen to all of them necessarily at a very detailed level, but we would make sure that we had good broad representation across the market and we're just good listeners. And then we would execute against that. So mm -hmm. it wasn't rocket science. It was really simple of being close to your customers, understanding their needs and then listening and delivering. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, in a way it's not rocket science, but in a way it's also something that a lot of companies could learn from, right? Because you guys were dialed in and focused and actually listen and put it into action. So, which is, which is rare. So that's great. Um, and I think a lot of people I talk to in the software space, and I think I kind of joke, you know, Steve Jobs, I think put it in people's heads that, um, that customers didn't always know what they want. And so you have to deliver something different. And to a degree, I, I understand, like, even if he said that, or if it's just attributed to him, but I also say, you know, there was only one Steve Jobs. And so he may have been able to predict what people needed before they needed it. Most of mm -hmm. us need to listen to our customers and deliver what they're asking for, something close to what they're asking for. That the way in which you deliver it may be novel and the customer wouldn't have come up with it on their own, but they know what their pain points are. And I think the closer you are to your customers, the better chance you have of delivering something of value that they're willing to pay for. And I hear way too often in talking with entrepreneurs and software leaders that they, you know, they'll respond back with things like, you know, our, our roadmap is based on our gut or, you know, right. it's our internal innovation projects. And really the more you can get in front of your customers, the better chance you have of delivering the right stuff. Right. Yeah. I, I definitely agree on the Steve Jobs thing. I think, I think people confuse creating a solution versus understanding the problem or empathizing with the customer. And the only way you can do that is by listening to them. So yeah. you can create an innovative solution that's different than what the customer is asking for. Um, but you definitely need to listen to them to figure out what that innovative solution right. is. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So understand, I, I get it. So you listening to the needs of customers, how did you balance that versus what prospects were asking you for, or what sales would say, I need this to close a deal or what the general market uh, perception was of your product and what you needed to do to, to improve that or, or gain more market share. 
Yeah. And therein lies the great tension, right? <laughs> yeah. I think with all software companies, that is everywhere I've ever been. That's one of the toughest things to manage is, um, you know, sales wants something different than what the services team wants and prospects want something slightly different than what customers want and different size customers want different solutions and the product people want to deliver something that may be more innovative and exciting to work on. And so that's a constant tension. And I don't know if we are, we certainly weren't perfect at it. I don't know if we were better than average at it, but I think we certainly debated that a lot. Um, and we would use different techniques, you know, whether we had kind of an ideas forum where customers could submit um, suggestions and then kind of vote them up and down. And we would, we would listen to those things. We, I mentioned focus groups before we certainly would take a lot of input from people who are working the front lines of our customer support organization. Um, we would certainly dissect, you know, um, sales postmortems, whether we won or lost a deal, what was the cause of that um, as it related to product. And so we were trying to take all these different data points and making the best decisions we could, but it was, it was definitely driven by a lot of data and a lot of different perspectives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds great. And just kind of how a formal investment committee would be run, right? Yeah. And I've joked mm -hmm. with startups too, who don't have, who are like pre-revenue and don't have customers yet. I'm like this, you should enjoy this stage of your life because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes customers can be your biggest problem because yeah, yeah. Not, you want to meet the needs of your, meet the needs of your customers, but you can be hearing, you know, with, if you have 500 different customers, you could be hearing 500 different requests and that becomes a big challenge. And mm -hmm. I don't think it's an easy thing to do. I think it's a constant battle, whether you have 10 customers or 10,000, it's a very difficult balance. Yeah. Do you have advice for people in terms of how they're running investment committees? Uh, the one thing I tell people is, you know, you want to have a roadmap that is driven by the ROI and return for the business and also for specific KPIs related to customers like NPS or customer satisfaction. So but curious to hear what your take on that is in terms of how you prioritize uh, for that investment committee uh, across the business. Yeah. I mean, again, I think that's, it's challenging because there's, there's going to be things on your roadmap that are going to deliver new revenue, um, which is always going to, you know, it's going to be high on the priority list. You have other things which are going to reduce your cost because they could be a big, um, you know, it's a, a technical debt. That's a big weight kind of on your support and maintenance organization. Um, and so I think it's, I think it's, again, it's taking in those data points and balancing that. I think if all you're delivering is new functionality all the time that's revolutionizing your market, but you're not fixing defects or evolving the existing product, then you're going to be in trouble. So I think if, to us, it's always just been a balance. It's been saying, you know, this is a revenue generating opportunity versus this is a cost saving opportunity versus this is something else. And so I think it's labeling it correctly, making sure you're balancing it listening to your customers. Um, but I don't think there's a silver bullet to that. There's certainly not one right answer. And I think it depends a lot on, depends a lot on the momentum you have in your market. It depends on what your market share is and the strength of your competitors and what your competitors are bringing to market. And so, you know, if somebody's coming into your market and delivering something that's really innovative and novel and is, is gaining market share, then you're probably going to need to react to that even if it wouldn't normally be on your roadmap. And so there's, you know, outside influences that can affect your decisions around that as well. So I think it's just making sure you're properly categorizing it and having candid conversations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But no, I don't think this, the, to me, there's not an easy formula for that. It's, it's, it's more nuanced. Yeah. You definitely have to get in the weeds and try to figure out and prioritize. Um, but that's, that's, that's some great advice. So give me, given that you're getting all this feedback and I'm rewinding a little bit. So you're getting all these feedback, this feedback from customers and they're asking for these different solutions and you acquired like eight companies over your time at Daxco. How did you determine which solutions you want to buy versus what you're going to build versus what you're going to partner with somebody on? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So um, like one example, because this is an easy one, um, several years ago, you know, we, we knew we needed to have a mobile solution because consumers were expecting that. So if you think about it, if you're a YMCA member, a JCC member, or a health club member in general, you want to be able to register for classes. You want to be able to see schedules and locations and instructors and all the things on your phone. And so um, there was a, a, a small, actually a website developer who had, de who had developed a mobile app for 
some YMCA's and was gaining traction. And so we were at the point of kind of, we had designed what we wanted to build and had a kind of conceptual idea of what we wanted to build. And then we stopped and said, okay, we need to make the kind of buy build decision. And in that case, this, this um, provider already had a hundred customers and we, you know, figured, let's just say for raw numbers, it was going to take us a year to build the right solution. And in that year they may gain another hundred customers. So we thought it was going to be faster for us and easier if we just go ahead and buy them. Um, and then we would overnight have a mobile solution it already had integrated with our, our course system. And then even if the technology wasn't perfect, we could rewrite it later, but we were gaining some market share with these hundred customers and eventually it was going to be 200 in a year. And um, so mm -hmm. that was kind of our, how we went through it and said it was just going to be faster and less risky for us to do it that way. We ended up doing that and then we did build it ourselves later because the solution wasn't as scalable as we would have liked, but it, it, it produced exactly the result we wanted. We, we kind of kept, um, the speed at its maximum by getting a mobile app that we could sell into our cust our larger customer base overnight and um, allowed us to kind of lock those customers into our solution while we built kind of the longer term platform. And then other times, like we, we I mentioned we built a CRM solution. We actually had a lot of discussions with Microsoft and Salesforce back several years ago about building a CRM solution on their platforms and just really felt like um, those products are, in fact, we were a big Salesforce user. Those products are great for um, relatively sophisticated organizations, but our customers have a lot of part-time staff, a lot of staff turnover, and putting a really heavy product um, in their hands was not going to be effective. So the learning curve would be too great. Um, adoption would be, would be really poor. So we decided in that case to build a CRM solution from the ground up that you know, again, was very purpose built for their needs and was very simple to use. And so we just didn't believe there was something in the market that we could kind of leverage to do that. So we had to build it from scratch. So it was really just case by case. We'll look at those. And then from an acquisition perspective, more broadly, you know, we would kind of break things into three categories. We would say, you know, this is, we're going to look at acquisitions that are going to increase our TAM or our total addressable market. We're going to look at things that gain more market share customers and then we'll look at things that add features or functionality that we don't currently have and so and we've done acquisitions in all of those categories so we bought a company as an example in um in houston called csi software that allowed us to get into the for-profit health club space back in 2015 and so that was clearly just a tam acquisition we were buying them because we wanted to increase our total addressable market and then we have, um, you know, bought people who had competing. In fact, a few years later, we bought a company called Club Automation that was competitive with CSI, and that was more of a market share and additional customers. And we were able to kind of merge those two businesses together, um, although both platforms are still alive today. And then other ones like the the mobile app that I mentioned before, we were able to buy that. Really, was a filling a feature gap, and we've done that mm -hmm. a couple times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that framework, which is one is to increase your TAM, two is to increase or acquire customers, and three is to add features and functionality that you don't necessarily have yourself. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, and, and the coming back to your example about acquiring the, the person who had built the solution that you didn't have, and it would have cost you money to develop it over the course of one year. I think it comes back to the point about focus, right? When you identify that, hey, here's the thing that we're good at, we don't necessarily need to build this alternative solution that extends into an adjacency that is not our core competency, but here's a provider who is who has figured it out. Um, so let's acquire them instead of trying to compete with them. Right, yeah, and it's, it's the cost, the hard dollar cost of it, but it was more important to us at the time. It was the timing of it, the year we felt like we'd fall too far behind. And then the other aspect with what you just said reminded me, you know, we didn't really have any mobile development resources in-house. Um, and so by acquiring that, we were able to kind of um, buy ourselves some learning curve as well. So we acquired it. We had people who were beginning to develop skill sets around mobile development. Mm -hmm. um, but by buying it, we're, people were able to kind of do maintenance work and enhancements on that product. And so they didn't have to build something from the ground up. And so then when we did decide to build you know, version 2.0, those people had 
maintained that product for a year or two and had built those mobile skills. And when we were ready to build the new platform, we had a skill set in-house that we really didn't have, you know, a year or two earlier. And so, it, you know, it bought us time from that perspective as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you're when you're modeling out the upside for acquisitions like this, and I'm assuming the answer obviously varies, but just to get, maybe you can give us some examples of um, how how would you model out the upside versus how much you're investing for, let's say, TAM or or the functionality, right? Like, how are you balancing that trade off there? Yeah, um, I mean, I would say probably the overarching we had private equity investors and we were very much and still are i'm still on the board of of daxco and you know we're a an ebitda um kind of driven business from an investment standpoint so we think about things in terms of you know increasing ebitda although you know we're still growing it at a pretty good clip but um so a lot of our um you know our modeling literally like when we were going through diligence or when we were bidding on a business had to do with what did we think kind of the, the short term and long term EBITDA contribution was going to be from acquiring this business. And, and so, you know, we would, we would model out what the current growth rate was. If there was something we thought we brought to the table that was going to increase that growth rate, we'd model that in. We would, you know, if there was redundancy in, in the businesses, once we bought theirs, we were able to remove some of that, you know, as that people like to refer to as synergies, those synergies were going to drive to the bottom line. And so that's typically, you know, we were going through that scenario of like, what's, you know, what's the growth rate today? How do we improve that? What are the cost synergies we're going to see in this? And then we would have a very, you know, sophisticated, huge spreadsheet model that would tell us what we Mm -hmm. believe the returns would be over time. And so it was really kind of as simple as that, knowing that we were kind of valued, um, from a transaction perspective on EBITDA, that was what drove a lot of us. We want, we want growth, certainly, but that growth needs to deliver um, profits over time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, and then when you're driven by EBITDA, then once that company is acquired, you have to look for those efficiencies, right? So can you talk about that process when, regardless of you know which reason you're acquiring the particular company, uh, how did you go about finding the efficiencies within the organizations now that you have two separate entities? Yeah, I mean, there's some basic stuff that, you know, is probably the low hanging fruit, um, like the clear redundancy. So we had some back office capabilities that usually when we would do acquisitions, um, they either, you know, they, they probably had a lower level version of what we had. So we had, you know, a relatively sophisticated finance and HR operations and some, most of these kind of smaller companies we were buying would have something, but not necessarily as sophisticated and and it didn't make sense to have multiple finance teams across these organizations. So we would find kind of cost synergies there almost immediately. And, you know, most cases, and I think that's, you know, fairly standard you'll see in the M&A world. Um, You know, we tended to not do as much of that around like R and D and services because usually those, we needed those people, um, and so mm-hmm. we weren't looking to we weren't looking to wipe out entire teams. Although, you know, we had done an acquisition very early on where there was almost a hundred percent redundancy, and really the the group that we had acquired had really built their business to be acquired, and they were, um, you know, they were going to be aggressive enough in the market. There, it caught either our attention or one of the other, you know, one or two larger competitors. And, you know, he executed that playbook quite effectively and he um, positioned that business to be, to be bought really in category two. It was all about customers and market share. And so most of that team did not come forward with the transaction, including the, the CEO. And so there were, you know, immediate efficiencies in that situation. The mobile app company I mentioned before, you know, we, when we bought that, it was really a one-man show. And he went back to doing what he was doing, website development, and we really just bought the um, the IP in that case. And mm-hmm. so each situation was a little bit different, but the, the most significant acquisitions we did, the bigger needle moving acquisitions were in category one. It was the TAM. It was how do we get into these additional addressable markets? So like we bought a company that allowed us to get into what I call the small box gyms, things like yoga studios and CrossFit and um, martial arts and boutique uh, personal fitness, those types of things, which is kind of a different 
certainly different functionality needs. And so you need a different product. And we bought that, you know, there were almost no um, redundancies other than some of the stuff I mentioned before around finance and the people team, which what we called HR. And so there, you know, that, that group continued to kind of operate and has more headcount today than they did when we acquired them. And so it's mm -hmm. really, so that was not at all about cost savings. It was really more about growth and it was a company that was growing at a pretty good clip and we felt like we could maintain that or increase it. And um, that was more the model was instead of cost savings, we were going to, we were going to kind of win that um, through growth. Right. So talk a little bit as you're growing and you're trying to find these efficiencies, like how do you balance that with the culture element? Um, because people obviously when, when changes like that are made, it's, it's usually not the best reaction, right? So talk about how you've, manage to balance the culture element of the business? Yeah, I think that is probably the hardest thing to do in this. And so as, as we had done more and more acquisitions, it like got higher and higher on my priority list to figure out very early in the discussions. And so there were lots of discussions we had with companies that just were going to be a horrible culture fit and we would, you know, not have any additional conversations with them. It became a real driver in how we thought about our M&A strategy and then, um, and then even ones where there felt like there was a better fit, I think it is a challenge, right? Because the, the company who's being bought, there's going to be fear amongst the team members about what, what does this mean for us? You know, A, am I going to lose my job? Or B, is the, how's the culture going to change? You know, are we going to become slower because we're now part of a larger organization? There's all these fears. So I think one thing that's really important is, you know, the person who's leading the company that is doing the acquiring needs to be there face to face on day one. And so that was always part of our kind of mode was that, you know, I would get on an airplane and be there the morning it was announced and, and be there mm -hmm. in person. And so like we bought this 90 person company in Denver and, you know, I was there the next day to have to with the other CEO to announce the acquisition and then to do an open Q and a where people could ask me any question. And so I think that's like day one, the kind of things you need to do. I think, um, what we learned over time and what I'm still even in my own mind kind of refining it as I think back over my tenure at Daxco is um, I think there's a real challenge with um, kind of riding the fence on how you're going to integrate a business once you've acquired them. I think, you know, it's probably better to leave them completely separate or to completely merge them. And I think when you kind of try to make it a hybrid where you're somewhere in the middle it creates a ton of ambiguity. Yeah. Um, you kind of suck the good stuff out of the business, which is the uniqueness of their culture, which made them special and why they're winning in the market in the first place, which is why you wanted to buy them. And at the same time, you're not getting the full advantage of all these efficiencies. So, you know, my, my thesis now is that you're probably, you know, during diligence or during the acquisition, you need to make a decision. I'm either going to leave this company where it's truly going to operate as an autonomous you know, subsidiary inside the larger organization, or I'm going to completely integrate it. But I just think riding the middle is, is really challenging. It's challenging for the management team on both sides. And it's definitely challenging for um, the team members who are kind of living through it. And, and it, you know, there's a lack of clarity there that I just think causes a lot of undue anxiety and lost productivity. And so I think going one way or the other, all in and just explaining it with great clarity at the beginning, say, this is what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it, but it'll be clear. <laughs> there's no, yeah. there's no room for misinterpretation. I think that's probably the key. And I think we probably, um, or I personally would kind of try to have the best of both worlds. And, and some of that was driven because we were trying to, we were trying to get, you know, maximum, synergies and that was the best way to do it but i think in the long run it, it becomes very challenging yeah completely agree as someone who's lived through some of those integrations i i feel like you definitely have to make a decision just because it's always up in the air then and people are always wondering about their future whether or not their roles will be integrated whether departments will be integrated what will happen to the brand there's all these open questions so answering yeah. that off the top and sticking to it as a leader is critical right yeah yeah so I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, would you guys have integrated Wild Apricot if you bought it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Under my new, under my new thesis, um, maybe not. Yeah, maybe we would have left that one complete because you guys would have been serving a different 
segment of the market. And so that, that would be an example actually of one that you would probably want to leave autonomous because we didn't have a redundant product. Yeah. Yeah, the, other, what, the other thing I'll say, which is somewhat related to this topic too, is, and, and this is, and I've had lots of conversations with kind of acquisition specialists, the people who have really done a, a lot more acquisitions than I have, um, is the CEO is an interesting, the CEO of the acquired company is always an interesting position too. And what I found being on the acquirer side is I would have these conversations with CEO on the other side and say, hey, listen, we really like your business. Um, we think it's a healthy business. Here's all the reasons why we would love to have it become part of our platform. You know, what, what would you like your role to be in the future? And if, and if your answer is you want to, you know, go to the beach or you want to start your next thing, we're okay with that because we like the business and it's, and it's a good business. And you've got a good team underneath you, but let's just have an open candid conversation about that. And mm -hmm. um, oftentimes what I've found is the CEOs of the acquired company, this isn't just in our context, but I think more broadly in conversations I've had with others is that the CEO is under a lot of pressure to get a deal done. Um, oftentimes they've got outside investors, they had a board of directors, they have investment bankers. There's a lot, it's not just their transaction, but it's, they're the represent, they're the representative of this whole body of people, including oftentimes if their employees have um, equity. Mm -hmm. And so they're saying, what they think you want to hear right. um, so they don't blow the deal up when in reality i believe in many cases they know in their heart of hearts that they have no intention of staying mm -hmm. and so what when we talk about ambiguity and lack of clarity is the challenge then becomes they say what you want to, what they think you want to hear when in reality i wanted to hear the truth and if the truth was i want to leave day one which i had one person do that and that was probably one of our best acquisitions was that, that that allowed us to execute on that plan. The bad part was when somebody knew they were gonna leave but were telling you this was their life's mission and they were never gonna leave, then you would stand up in front of the company on day one, like I mentioned, and they would be standing beside you and you'd say, you know, Bob is here for the long haul or Susie's never gonna leave because she loves this place. And right. then four or five months later, they're announcing their resignation. And then right. it blows up your whole integration plan and the team that has been working for you as the company that got acquired, they're like, well, if Susie left or Bob left, something must be wrong. And he or she knows something I don't mm -hmm. know. And so now mm -hmm. there's like a whole nother, they've just gotten over the fear of the acquisition. Now they've got the fear of like, why is my CEO leaving? Yeah. And so I just think what I'm, even what I'm doing with BSO Collectives, I'm trying to have those conversations in much more direct ways now with these CEOs of the companies that we're looking at acquiring and saying, like that's you know, explaining, you know, in detail scenarios that I've seen this play out and how that's a bad thing. You think you're doing the right thing, but it's actually bad for your team and bad for your customers and it's bad for the company. So like, if you want to leave, let's have that conversation. It's not going to affect our decision to buy the company. What it's going to affect is how we do the integration or how we do the announcement and communication. And so if there's one thing I could encourage the people who are considering selling their businesses, if you've got a good business and you've built a good team, people will buy that business regardless of whether or not you're there. And you're going to make everybody's life a lot easier if you're just honest with what you want to do. Right. No, completely agree. Yeah. I, I think if a CEO is selling their business more likely than not, they want out and putting that on the, on the table allows you to kind of plan what the integration needs to look like. So, and, yeah, and I, I heard a, Sorry, go ahead. Well, I heard a private equity partner recently say this on a podcast that he said um, in their time of, of doing majority control deals, they found that the combination of an entrepreneur having a boss for the first time and us wiring $10 million in their bank account was a really bad combination for their, <laughs> for their retention. <laughs> and so yeah. I think that's the case, you know, Again, if somebody likes kind of being able to do their own thing and they just got paid a lot of money, it's going to be hard to keep them engaged and interested. So, right. or, or, or even willing to deal with, you know, a different working environment. <laughs> right. Which, yeah. Uh, yeah. Different, a, yeah. It's a, almost always it's going to be a different approach to how you run your business day to day and how you, the, how stringent your reporting is and the accountability, all those things are going to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 100%. Um, so t touch on BSO Collective now, because you said you you're trying to do it differently this time around. So talk about what's different with BSO and what the objective is there. Yeah. So as I um, 
as I departed my full-time role last summer and was thinking about what I wanted to do next in life, um, and I was thinking about the things I enjoyed doing the previous 15 years and the stuff that I would have liked to have done different is I, I, I actually um, appreciated the 10 years in which I had private equity partners because without having outside investors at a level that could could deliver, you know, significant amount, significant amount of capital to allow us this to execute on this MA strategy. All of our growth would have had to been organic. We probably would have had to stay in smaller markets. And so that from that perspective, it allowed us to grow at a pace that would have been very difficult or impossible to do on our own. So and on top of that, you know, for the people who owned equity in the business, it was it's lucrative to it's a good, you know, it's a good outcome for people who are owners in the business. And so all those things are good. The thing I didn't um, like so much about it from an operator's perspective is that um, in today's market in particular, it's like when we first started doing private equity, it felt like, you know, the, the holding period was pretty standard around five years, you know, sometimes it'd be a little shorter, sometimes it'd be a little bit longer. It feels to me, and I don't know if I have the statistics to back this up, but it feels to me like it's now probably closer to three years. And part of that in my mind is because there's a ton of, excess capital available. There's, um, SaaS is a really hot market, obviously. And so the time frame is really short. And so the idea of investing in R&D or investing in new initiatives that are going to deliver ROI two or three years out oftentimes doesn't meet the time horizon for the investors or the majority mm-hmm. shareholders. And so it feels like you tend to make decisions that are much more based on like, are you going to deliver your numbers this quarter because you want a nice smooth curve that's going up into the right. And so when it's getting when the business either gets inbound interest or you get ready to go to market um, that, you know, your growth trajectory is smooth and you don't have to have a lot of explanations on why there were dips and things like that. So as an operator who's trying to build a long-term enduring business, that can be frustrating because it feels like you're making shorter term decisions all based on financial outcomes and not based on building an enduring business or building great solutions for your customers or a great place for your people to work and those kinds of things. And so with that in mind, I thought, okay, how could I do this? I like doing the acquisitions from the perspective of you, you can create growth at a, at a fast pace. Um, I like operating software businesses, in particular SaaS businesses, but I want to figure out how to do something on a different time horizon. And so um, I've partnered with a, a company called EBSCO Industries, which is a large conglomerate that's actually headquartered here in Birmingham. It's been around, they're celebrating their 75th um, anniversary this year. So they've been around for a long time and kind of like a, a smaller version of Berkshire Hathaway, they this diversified portfolio um, underneath this conglomerate of different businesses across a wide range of industries. And um, they have very much kind of a buy and hold mentality. And so um, I met the CEO there um, shortly after I left Axco and I had already kind of had this idea in my head about creating a holding company where I would acquire multiple B2B mission critical SaaS businesses utilizing this buy and hold strategy, but I, and I was trying to find the right type of financial partner that would have that same mentality. And so um, by chance, he and I went and grabbed coffee one day. I learned more about what EBSCO was all about. Um, and a few days later, I emailed him this kind of white paper I had written to myself, really. And he was the only person I sent it to. I sent it to him and said, hey, after having a conversation <laughs> with you, you know, I'm, I'm fairly deep in conversation with some other groups about being the backer of this initiative, but it sounds like you guys might be interested in this. And then after several more conversations, um, we, you know, we formalized kind of a partnership to pursue this. And so the idea is that, you know, looking for B2B mission critical SaaS, which as I mentioned, Daxco was very much mission critical. Our business, our customers could not open their doors without our software being in place. And so I like the stickiness and retention metrics that come with that type of business you know, everything I've ever done in my career pre-Daxco and through Daxco has always been B2B. And so that's just, that's what I know. And then SaaS, I just believe is the right business model for all the obvious reasons. And so um, we're out pursuing those types of companies now and I'm industry agnostic. Like it doesn't really matter to me what industry it's serving as long as it meets that business model definition. And, and our sweet spot is we're looking um, for businesses that are in the five to $10 million 
kind of ARR range. Um, we can certainly, we have the capacity and willingness to go larger, but part of this is we're trying to position ourselves competitively where maybe not as many um, mistake buyers are swimming. And so keeping it kind of under that $10 million range, we hope there'll be, there will be plenty of competition as we recognize every day, but hopefully um, not as much as there are some of the larger, some of the larger SaaS businesses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. So when you acquire these companies, I guess the model will be more, you're saying buy and hold, but EBITDA focused and long-term, you know, you're going to pay out the, the investors through dividends. Is that the plan? Yeah, well, yeah, there would be liquidity, you know, at day one when we acquire. And then if somebody wanted to, um, if the owner, the existing owners of the business wanted to roll, you know, some of their ownership into the new deal, they could, and we would have mechanisms for them to, to see the, the upside on that as well. And then as far as EBSCO goes, um, yeah, I mean, their, their model in general is that they take their profits and, and reinvest it back in the business. But yeah, mm-hmm. in essence, it'll be creating the idea is to create, um, you know, positive cash flow over time, but continue to grow these businesses. And then the other piece of it is, you know, I'm not a financial engineer. Um, my background is, you know, I started out as a developer. I was the CEO of a SaaS business for 15 years. You know, I view myself very much as an operator. I don't pretend to be a financial engineer. So my hope is that that resonates with some people that um, mm-hmm. I want to be a partner in helping them run a better business. And it's not about an exit. It's about how do we build a business that can win in our chosen markets, that can be around for the long term, that creates great value for our customers, creates great you know, career opportunities for our team members, creates high quality jobs. I mean, all the things that I think a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners would like to be able to do, but at the same time, it gives them the ability to take either all their chips or some of their chips off the table. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, we can provide enough assistance with our operational experience where we can be helpful, but we also want to provide them enough autonomy where we don't take away what makes them special and, and degrades their sense of ownership. Right. Right. That's awesome. I think that's a, that's a fantastic approach. In some ways, you know, I mean, you've worked with Pamela Capital, who is the uh, personified owner, and they're great. Yeah. And they have, they have an approach. Guys, yeah. yeah, really great guys. And then at the same time, you have founders who don't have any investors. And it's kind of like a, the best of both worlds in some ways. So I think it's a great approach. Yeah, and the way we're, we're kind of phrasing with people is, you know, if you were looking for a change of control um, transaction, and some of that's driven by, you know, needs for liquidity sometimes it's driven because your cap table kind of requires you to you know get out a lot of the early investors and the only way you're going to do it is through kind of a majority control deal and so usually your only two options are you'd go to a strategic buyer and there's some downsides there oftentimes where you're gonna your your brand may go away you may you know a lot of your employees jobs may go away not always but oftentimes and then you know if you go the private equity route again it's like you're on this treadmill where every three to five years, you're kind of having to do another transaction and it might become more EBITDA focused. You're oftentimes likely going to put a lot of debt on the business. And so there's things, you know, there's positives and negatives in both those scenarios. And then what we're hoping to offer is kind of this third option. So we're not Mm -hmm. private equity, we're not strategic, we're kind of this third option where there's hopefully more of the benefits and less of the downside. Right. That's fantastic. Do, Do you have that white paper that you shared with the EBSCO industries person? I do. Yes. Are you, are you open to sharing that? Yeah, I would maybe need to clean it up a little bit, but yeah, I would, I'd be willing to share that. Awesome. So yeah, we can, we can touch base on that on email. Okay. Um, Great. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think those are all the questions I have. Any, any parting thoughts that you'd want to share? Um, yeah, nothing that comes to mind other than, you know, I think all entrepreneurs who are running these SaaS businesses, you know, I think the more you focus on how do you build a great enduring business and that be your primary driver, the better off you're going to be. I think when you get caught up in trying to figure out your maximum value for an exit or some Mm -hmm. other financial metric versus just building a great enduring business, um, you're going to be a lot better off. And the transaction opportunities are going to present themselves if you built a really healthy business. But I think it's just where, where you put in your focus and your focus needs to be on how I deliver great solutions to my customers and how do I deliver great opportunities for my team. And if you're doing those things, the financial stuff will follow. Right. Uh, and if there is a mission critical SaaS founder listening to the episode and might be interested in learning or working with you on BSO, how would they get in touch with you in terms of talking about some a potential acquisition? 
you can go to my website at Viso, which is B-I-S-O collective.com, or you can email me at Dave at Viso collective.com. Excellent. Um, and, and last but not least, let me just appreciate you, Dave, for doing this. I think uh, what I enjoyed about this episode is just your unique approach to growing businesses and your focus on culture and people. And you bring all that to the strategic side. So I think that's really rare in a CEO. So I think uh, Biso Collective is going to do really well. So I wish you the best. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. That's it for today's episode, guys. Before you end this episode, I have a few requests. Uh, One, if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Number two, please leave a rating and review uh, just so that other people who are looking for similar information or podcasts like this can discover it better. And number three, if you want to work with us at How to Sass, check out the website www.howtosass.com or email me directly. Uh, that's shiv at howtosass.com. Uh, other than that, thanks for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.